Hey, everyone. I'm going to tell you right now that um, last week I took my son fishing in Canada. That was the majority of my preparation for this sermon. And um, turns out when you're fishing 13 hours a day, there's not a lot of time for that. Um, This is the last sermon in Ezekiel. Um, we did 31 Sundays in Ezekiel, which is actually not very many, given that it's a 48-chapter book and there's lots of different oracles. But I'm going to try to wrap up today, and then we're going to start in Philippians next week. So, I'm going to dive right in. <clears throat> One of the things that we know about human beings is that we are... In order to enjoy something, the thing itself has to exist, and we also have to have a taste for it. It's actually kind of remarkable how malleable human taste is. Things that you could feel like you can't live without. You can, and not all that long, find them rather repugnant. I remember one of the times where I quit drinking soda because I was drinking way too much of it because it was my ADD medication for a while in grad school, and um, it just tasted really dirty when I drank it again. I was just like, this is gross, right? Because I just kind of lost a taste for it because I just hadn't drank it for a while. I remember when I was um, in, after sixth grade, I went to this Christian camp because there were more girls than boys there. And after I accepted Jesus for the first time out of like 37 times before it took, um, I was told I should read the Bible because the memory verse for that week was, um, his word is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path, right? So I was like, gosh, you read the Bible. So my, my, my wife, my mom, I didn't have a wife in sixth grade. Um, my mom <laughs> bought me a King James Bible at the Price Chopper, which is a grocery store. And I started reading it. And Genesis was full of fencing, fighting, giants, true love, and miracles. So that was really fun to read. And then most of as, um, Exodus, but I kind of got bogged down in Leviticus, which if you don't know, this is like all of God's laws for the Levitical priests class, right? Not exactly riveting reading for a sixth grader. And so I kind of quit reading the Bible for a while, you know. And um, some years later, I was a counselor at that same camp, and I had an hour quiet time each day that was scheduled in. It was the only time I wasn't ransacked with children. And <clears throat> I sat down, and I was reading the, I got to read the Bible, and I said to read the book of Leviticus. By that point, I'd read a bunch of the New Testament and knew something about the gospel. And I, it was, I found it fascinating because I saw all these connections to stuff I'd read in the New Testament, all these things Jesus had done, echoing back to this, all these Jesus sacrifice himself, echoing back to these sacrifices in Leviticus. I was like, oh my gosh, did anybody know about this? Then I turned to the camp, the guy who led the camp, Eric Bazzell, I was like, Eric, do you know? Did all this stuff in Leviticus? He's like, yeah, it's in the Bible. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I was like, well, it's exciting for me. <laughs> right? The, the, something had changed in me. My taste had changed. I'd come to love Jesus, and then I wanted to understand him better. And then I saw these acts that he did that I felt like I kind of understood. And then I went back and read the previous revelation that was supposed to make sense of them. And it made sense of them. And all of a sudden, I felt like I knew who he was better. I knew what he did so much better. And this thing that had put me to sleep and that I didn't have a taste for, all of a sudden, I had a taste for. Same thing true, was true kind of about the book of Ezekiel itself for me. I've, you know, I've, I've read and studied Ezekiel about three times in my life. You know, first time I read it, I just couldn't make much sense of it. You'll remember the first sermon I said that in the rabbinical tradition in Judaism, you're not even allowed to read the book of Ezekiel until you're 30 years old, okay? Because it's a little weird, you know? And so I read it, and then I had to study it in seminary, obviously. <clears throat> and I, I was fine, it was fine, but I still was kind of like, ah, major prophets. This time when I read it, now that I'm, you know, older, um, 
man, I found I couldn't get enough out of it. I found it like every page was fascinating. I wanted to just preach out of it for like four years, and then I was like, this is too much, you know. And people were like, are we going to do another book soon? I was like, yeah, probably. Okay. And then my—actually, it was my second, my second child, Rachel, my daughter. She was like, Dad, you need to wrap it up in Ezekiel. <laughs> she's pretty, she's pretty, pretty devout girl, you know. Um, so one of the great themes of the book of Ezekiel is, is that God is going to give us his glory. He is, he is magnificent in ways that we have not yet even begun to fathom. And he's going to give us that glory, and that glory will either be for our eternal enjoyment or our utter and complete destruction. And we have to be prepared or put into taste for his glory and prepared to receive and enjoy it, right? Um, And there's numerous dynamics there. One is we just have to be forgiven. We have to be made worthy of it and capable morally of accepting it and seeing it. But we also have to see it. We also have to give up our denial concerning it. We also have to be put into taste for it, and all these things, right? And in the book of Ezekiel, it begins with Ezekiel seeing God's glory, and it is strange, weird, overwhelming, beautiful, loud, right? And then we see it later leaving the temple because people have abandoned God. He finally leaves as he is pushed out of his own temple un- accepted, right? And then, but later in the end of the book, he returns. And so you could say in one one sense that like the theme of the book of Leviticus is knowing that God is the Lord is the only thing that can fit us for glory or put us in taste for glory, right? The most repeated clause in the book of Ezekiel is, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, um, if you haven't read the introduction to your Bible, which most of us haven't even read our Bibles, so the likelihood you've read it is low, um, the way the word Lord is spelled in the Bible is actually significantly important in its translation, okay? So when the word Lord is capital L and then just lowercase r-d, in the Old Testament, it's usually just the generic Hebrew word Adonai for Lord, that is person who's in charge, right? Um, when it's spelled in all caps, L-O-R-D, all capitals, it's translating the word Yahweh or Yada, right? Which is the, the covenant personal name of God, Yahweh, right? And when uh, God says in Ezekiel, you, then you will know that I'm the Lord. It's always capital L, capital O, capital R, capital E. Not just that you'll know that I'm powerful, right? Because Lord means king or master or person who's in charge, the person who has the right and sovereignty and power to rule. That's what Lord is, right? But L-O-R-D, all caps, is not just a generic sovereign, powerful being. It's a particular covenantal God who has a particular character who has spoken and shown himself in a very specific way so that people would actually know not just that he exists, not just that he's powerful, not just that he can kick your butt, right? But that he is—has a certain character. He has a certain will. He has a certain identity. He has certain desire for us. He has a certain relationship to us that he calls a covenant. And that we have to know the shape of God's character and what he's really like. You see, because if— if God was only trying to reveal to us that he was capital L, lowercase already, just the, just sovereign, powerful one, you wouldn't need a whole drawn-out book of the Bible. You wouldn't need 48 chapters. You wouldn't need 30-something oracles. You wouldn't need all the major prophets. You wouldn't need an exile and return. All you would need was a sound butt-whipping. Do you understand? Like, if, if all you need to show is power, then all you need to show is power. Do you understand? But you see, like we just heard this morning, right? 
their power doesn't tell you much about somebody other than that they're powerful. They could be a despot, they can be a warlord, they can be a genocidal maniac, or they can be the right and good king destroying the treasonous people who are destroying his good creation. Power itself doesn't tell you much about somebody other than that they're powerful. And turns out, God's power is not the main thing he's trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate his shape, his character, his personality, his, his spirituality, his moral status, his truthfulness, his beauty, his magnificence, his— And when you put it all together, the word used generically in the Bible for just all of that put together is his glory. The bigness, the beauty, the reality. He wants to give that to us. And that— is unbearably great and strange, and we have to be put into taste for it. And we aren't naturally in taste for it, right? So one of the themes you see all through the book of Ezekiel is that um, divine empathy can reveal the weight of our abominations. Now, that's a dangerous concept, divine empathy, right? I don't mean that God understand what understands what it's like to be us. He does understand what it's like to be us. He especially demonstrates he knows what it's like to be us in Jesus the Christ— and in all the ways he relates and treats us kindly. He knows what it's like to be us. Psalms say, say, you know what it's like. You know that we are but dust, right? God knows our weakness and our wickedness and their relationship to each other. But when I say divine empathy in this case, I don't mean that. I mean the reverse, which is a relatively dangerous and very limited concept, which is us trying to understand on some level what it's like to be God to human beings. What that's like. And that that has the ability, if we, if, we, if we get it at all, to reveal the weight of our abominations. Now, if you've been reading the book of Ezekiel in the NIV, the New International Version, which is what's in your pews, the word usually translated abominations is translated detestable acts, okay? So, okay, translation. It misses a little bit of the fun. Um, and that is to say this, that um, God is not just dealing with human beings who have done some mistakes— that are easily corrected. The Bible does not speak of human beings in the, in the nature of evil as people who, like, have made some mistakes or who, who do bad things and we're just kind of bad, but that we are not just bad, but we're selfishly self-justifying to a delusional level, right? It says that Jesus, literally the one who created everything in John 1, came at, in the flesh, and it says this, John says, he came to that which was his own, but it didn't recognize him. <laughs> Think about that. He came to the thing that was the, his very own, his creation. It says, in, it says in John 1, there's nothing that's been made that he didn't make. He made everything. He is the creator of everything. And he came to that thing he created, and it had been so broken, so twisted, so deluded, that it didn't recognize him. It didn't even know who he was. Yeah. Right? It says in Romans 1 that in this process, human, the way human beings move through this process, and we ultimately claim to be wise, we say in a sophisticated way, we know, we know, we get it now. And in doing so, we become fools. And that's not just something that happened in the ancient world with things like idolatry, right? It happens in our own processes of modernity through our own attempted sophistication, right? What Kant called enlightenment, our ability to no longer need the supervision of things like religion, but that we can do these things ourselves, or Nietzsche's transvaluation morals that, like, we can decide what's valuable. We don't have to just value what all the weak people think are valuable. We can be strong and, like, self-possessed creative people, and we can decide what we think is valuable. Maybe what all the weak people who, like, need other people to take care of them think is valuable isn't what strong creative people should think is valuable, right? Well, it turns out 
It turns out the Lord believes literally exactly the opposite of that. The morals of Nietzsche and Putin and others. That when you become extremely, superlatively powerful and creative, you become more concerned than ever with the weak. With each individual person, how they really feel, what's really going on in their lives. You're more attuned to it. You care more about it the more powerful you become. If you're God, and you're not just powerful, but you're glorious, right? And what, what over and over he says, so in the book of Ezekiel, that word abomination is used 39 times. And God's, God uses very superlative language in his negative descriptions of human behavior. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't say, you know how we talk now? It's like we like to talk really passively and non-judgmentally. We're like, well, that might have been a little bit of a mistake, you know? Or, you know, kids make good choices. You know, sometimes we don't make the best choices. And then, you know, sometimes there's consequences to those choices. You know? It's only when there's something that we all agree on publicly that is what bad people do, but not us that we allow ourselves to use words of moral approbation like abuse. Right? Oh, that's abuse. We use that for things that we don't think we do. Does that make sense? But we do. We do. God doesn't do that. He says, that's an abomination. That's detestable. This is wickedness. That's iniquity. That's—he just calls stuff what it is. He's like, look, that's what it is. I'm not going to pretend it's not what it is, right? One of the things that's interesting about the word abomination is that— um, is its etymology, right? So you know, like if I say, um, if, if you say like, um, I think that um, we should spend more money on public schools, and I say, yeah, you say that because of your, your dumb face, right? You would say, Nick, that's a logical fallacy, right? It's called ad hominem against the man or against the human being, right? Like you're attacking the person, not the argument, right? The word ab abomination comes from a really similar root. Ab hominem, that is against or undermining the humanity. What's an abomination, right? We just use that word like it's like a nasty thing or it's like a Marvel villain, right? But like what abomination means is it means, it means something that is an action against the inherent humanity of a person, right? In the Old Testament, for example, um, there are some things called abominations in the sexual code, like in Leviticus 18 and 21, that are like against our humanity. They're called abominations. But also the, a similar word is used that we translate abomination, when people like eat a dead bird they find, right? I was hunting elk one time in Colorado, and I came upon a dead thousand-pound Angus cow, just laying in the path, dead as nails, but not really rotted yet, a little bloated, you know? And I was like, you know, I'm here for meat. This is a cow, right? But if I would have brought that meat home, my wife would have been like, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, no, no. She'd be like, that's disgusting, right? Now, why would she consider it detestable, right? What does the word detestable mean? It means, well, it means bad, Nick. Okay, listen, we have different words because they have different meanings. We have to learn where these words come from. Okay, detestable means it is so bad, I am morally obligated to testify against it. I am to de-testify it. I am to say, no, I'm not doing that. That is what it means to be detestable. When your wife, you know, when your mom comes in your room, kids, and goes, you need to clean this up, right? She is detesting. She's saying, this is detestable because I am testifying. It needs to change right now. 
You understand? Because why? Because a human being shouldn't live like this. What does she say? She's like, this place looks like a pigsty, right? Like pigs aren't humans, right? Like you're not supposed to live this way. You're a human. One of the things that makes humans humans is we put stuff in places, right? There's the old saying, my mom says this. She's in her 80s. You know, everything has a place and there's a place for everything. And if something doesn't have a place, you don't need it, okay? You need to get rid of it. That's how you clean, okay? You just like spring clean. Does it have a place? Then it's out of here, right? Or you get rid of something that's in a place so that that thing has a place because human beings put things in places, right? And that's part of what makes us human, right? Iniquity comes from the same roots where we get inequity. That is, it's uneven. It's unjust. Iniquity is injustice, right? Something is vile. It's it's, or unclean, right? Like these words matter. So ad hominem means against the humanity. If something's an abomination, it's against the humanity of something, right? Like think about this. Human beings are made in God's image, right? But we're embodied human creatures. We experience ourselves as bodies, right? We're in bodies. But we're made in God's image, right? And every human being, therefore, is either relating to the L-O-R-D— Yahweh as he is in his character, and therefore transvaluing in our character towards God in our humanity so that we're increasingly less bestial and more human, right? Treating things as they should be valued, right? Why does God use the word profane many times in Ezekiel? Why? Because profanity is by nature not treating something valuable with its proper value. Right? When we refer to something, like, why is profanity a bad thing, right? It's because in order for human beings to move, to become more human rather than more bestial, we have to value things at their value. When we use language that devalues some things and overvalue other things wrongly, that's profane. That is, we're not referring to things as they, for what they mean, as what their value. So that's why supremely— What's the supreme biblical command against profanity? It's not to not use the F word, right? It's an ugly word, but that's not the main one in the Bible, okay? You shouldn't use the F word, okay? Because it's profane. But you don't take the Lord's name in vain. You don't say Yahweh. You don't, like, you keep that name out of your mouth unless you're talking about it for the right reasons. I know that was a cultural reference. But that's the whole point. Like, supremely, you start with God. You refer to God importantly. Like, listen, you'll notice that I make fun of things in my sermons. You know what I don't make fun of? God. You know what else I don't make fun of? Sin. Do I make fun of me? Yes, I do. Right? Because there are a lot of stupid, funny things about me that are ridiculous because there's a lot of things that are ridiculous. And making fun of that stuff is helpful because it increases humility, which is something that should be valued. Right? There's a certain kind of humor you can have in a sermon. There's a certain kind of human humor you should not have in a sermon. It's the same kind of humor you should have in your life, whether you're preaching or not, and you shouldn't have in your life whether you're preaching or not. Profanity is profanity. Right? And listen, adults, adults, do not get on some teenager for saying the word sucks if you are talking about things and people in ways that devalue them, though you're not using a word that you disapprove of. Okay, there's ways to talk 
at young people that make them feel like you think that they're worthless because you don't like the cut of their jib, right? And you're acting profanely, attacking them for using profanity because we don't really know what the words mean. We don't know what profane means. We don't know what modesty means. And so we attack the thing that we don't do, right? Now, gotta keep moving, sorry. The point is, is that what happens to us when we don't see that, that God is the Lord and we don't see his character, or we're not moving towards him in faith, we end up moving away from him. And every time we move away from him, we are engaging in abomination. We are moving against our humanity. We're becoming more beastly. There's this funny uh, quote in Shakespeare, um, Love's Work Lost, I think is the, is the thing, where this guy's like really upset about like how fancy everybody's talking. He's like, yeah, let's be fancy talking. Oh, fancy interpretations and pronunciations. He's like, the word, the word is neighbor, not neighbor, right? And the word like, and the word is doubt, not doubt. Those fancy interpretations, right? But he says, he says, in fact, these people would probably say abomination instead of abomination, which is the proper pronunciation, right? Because the etymology is clear. You know what the word means. When you shorten the word to make it a more sexy interpretation, you often lose its context. It doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. And what God is trying to get across to people all the way through Ezekiel and all the way through the Bible and all the way through the work of Christ and presently now in the life of his church, is see, listen, there's only—you have to know the Lord. And I don't just mean, like, be a Christian, accept Jesus, be baptized. Absolutely those things. Those things are the hallmark rituals, the actions that we take. We repent of our sins, we accept Jesus, and we are baptized in his name. But those mean more than those things. They signify a larger relationship of not wanting to just acknowledge God, but to know— that God is the L-O-R-D in his full character so that we understand our full humanity so that we're growing in godliness, not abomination. And when we don't acknowledge God for who he really is, we will always be moving in an abominizing way towards profanity, producing iniquity. And throughout Ezekiel, he says it always produces idolatry, injustice, and violence. Now, it's important to recognize, though, that, like, God talks about this like it is a nearly unbreakable delusion in us. You understand? It feels that way. It, it acts that way. In chapter 24, which is the, one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible, maybe in some ways, but in Ezekiel, you know, Ezekiel's been in some ways nothing but faithful to God. Nothing negative said about him. You get to chapter 24, and he—God says, this is going to happen tonight. Like, he's no morning, no, no time to emotionally prepare for this. God says, tonight, your wife is just going to die. Just like that. And you're not going to mourn. Other people can cry for her, but you're not going to. You're going to put on your turban, you're going to put on your shoes, and you're going to go about your business. And people are going to say, what does this mean? What does it mean? Does it mean— that God is going to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the holy nation and do what he has to do and judge the people like they deserve, and then he's going to put on his hat and shoes and walk away and not mourn at all. Is that what it means? Because that's what it could mean. could have easily meant that, and it's not what it means. Do you know what it means? He 
this is what God says it means. He says, you will not more weep, but you will rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. He's saying this. He says, Jerusalem is the apple of your eye. It is everything that you think is meaningful in your life. It marks your race. It marks your ethnicity. It marks your national origin. It marks your homeland. It marks your family land. It marks everything. It's where your fathers and mothers have been buried. Jerusalem is everything to you, right? And he's like, and one day I'm going to completely destroy it. It's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And he says, and here's the thing. It's not—even that isn't going to do it. He's like, everything I've done to get your attention, everything I've tried to do to shake you from this delusion of your abominating direction, he said, I'm going to literally destroy the most valuable thing in your life and everything that goes with it. And you—and it's not going to affect you enough for you to change. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you'll— you won't really weep and mourn. You won't be broken by it so much that you're changed forever. What'll happen is you'll groan. Okay, now think about this. Think about this. Can an animal groan in pain, in difficulty? Yes. Can an animal mourn and weep? Not that we know of. I know, so you think, well, I had a dog there. Okay, I'm talking about the whole animal kingdom generally, okay? They don't, okay? There are some animals that when a family member dies, they wait a few hours before they eat them, you know? But we don't. But he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to groan. You're going to feel the pain. You're going to be like, oh, you're going to groan to each other like a bunch of cows that need milking. But you're not going to be broken to the heart, so cut to the chase that you are awakened from this level of delusion to realize that you don't know the Lord. You don't know yourself. You don't know what a neighbor is. You don't know what humanity means. And you've been sliding into an abominating, bestial life in which it's being increasingly filled with profanity and iniquity and vileness. And that what's happening to you is you're being lost. And you're becoming increasingly insensitive to it and more out of taste with God and more into taste of things bestial so that more and more you think you're oriented to those things, that you need those things, that those things will fulfill and satisfy you, though they don't, and less in taste and having less hope towards what might be availed and found and enjoyed in the L-O-R-D, Yahweh Lord, in His magnificence. And he's saying, listen, you need to take heed, you need to listen to me. Very few people ever shake out of this. So important was this, so important was this message that Ezekiel's wife died. And they didn't have a bad marriage. I was asked once, are there any good marriages in the Bible? I was like, that's a good one. The Bible just doesn't talk that way. People don't talk, people in the ancient world didn't say, I wonder if I have a good marriage. They didn't, they just didn't talk that way. They didn't think in therapeutic terms. So it's not really discussed in the Bible. But, um, but you can tell in this one, he says, he says, Ezekiel, I'm going to take away the apple of your eye. The most valuable thing in your life was his wife. He loved his wife. And I imagine one of the things that was so great about her is that she loved him, right? And that she was a beautiful person, and then she just dies, and he has no time to prepare. Not because God is cruel, but because God wanted to show how— Right? Like, if she had cancer and he had six months to prepare, and he didn't cry the day she died, okay, maybe that works. That's not what happened. She just, all of a sudden, just dies. And there's no response from him. 
It's unthinkable. And God says, that's what, that's what you're like. That's what you're like, people. That's what we're like. We need to be so careful in our hearts to recognize that th this thing that abominates our character is something that we have to pursue God in certain ways. I, the idea of being shaken out of this by divine empathy is, I think, a dangerous concept. Thinking that we can feel like God feels. But listen, empathy itself is a pretty dangerous concept. The idea that I think I know how you feel is a little bit shaky, right? That's why in moral philosophy and thought throughout thousands of years, we've talked about sympathy. Like, I, I, can, tr I can relate to you in certain ways, understanding you as best I can. But the idea that I have an obligation to understand your inner experience isn't going to work, right? Partly because, as Tequila Mockingbird says correctly, you really don't know what a person's life is like until you walk a mile in their shoes, which most of us just don't get to do for each other and with each other. It's one of the reasons 2 Corinthians 1 says that one of the most valuable things about your hurts and sorrows and failures of your past life is that you walk that mile in those shoes and you have a special capacity to minister to people who have had those same experiences, right? If you've experienced being a refugee, you can minister to refugees in a way most other people never will be able to do it. It is a terrible gift. If you're struggling with certain mental illness, if you've had certain abuse in your past, if you've made certain mistakes that are even unthinkable, right? Those are all, when redeemed, gifts because we can't empathize with each other. Not just abstractly. Like we talk like we can now. But God, throughout Ezekiel, in some ways seems to be inviting us to divine empathy, right? And all these things, all these oracles, all these things Ezekiel is supposed to do and say, most of them he's saying, do you see what it's like to be me? God is saying to people, do you see what it's like to be me? Do you see what it's like for me to have been your God all this time? Like, it's, it's been difficult, you know? And so there's, um, you know, in chapter 4, Ezekiel has to lie on his side for 390 days. And then to flip for 40 more, each one signifying a year of rebellion of the people of Israel. 430 years, right? All the while holding this little metal plate at a brick that represents Jerusalem because God is veiled from them, and yet he sees them. And then he gets a sword, and he sharpens it, and he cuts off his own beard. And he burns some of it, and he throws some of it to the wind. It's his own beard! And he's cutting it off his own face with some, like, somewhat sharp implement, right? And people are like, what the heck are you doing? He's like, he's like, you're God's own beard. You're part of his own body. You're his. And he's got to cut you off. And it's terrible. In Ezekiel 16, he talks about Israel as this horrifically adulterous wife who he saved from a bloody death of exposure when she was an infant. And then after she became old enough for love, he marries her and they have children together. And he adorns her like a princess. And she just uses all these jewels to pay for lovers that don't even pay her. And she, she becomes worse than a prostitute. And this is Israel. And he's like, and what's the point of that parable? Do you see what it's like to be God? You know why that's important? Because we all live in our own little, our own little worlds. We wake up and we're looking out of our own eyes all the time. And whenever we interact with anybody, we're always questioning, they just offended me because they didn't, they didn't really think about what it was like to be me, did they? Right? They're, they're, they're focused on what it was like to be them in our interaction, but they weren't focused on what it was like to be me. And so they've shortchanged me in this interaction, and I'm upset because I've been wronged. Right? That's how human beings are, not just children. 
We get really testy about it. And so the Israelites say, God says, listen, you're saying in your hearts, God has forsaken us. He's kind of forsaken you. You forsook me. Or God has left this land. I haven't left the land yet. You're driving me out of the land. I'm finally going to leave now. But I haven't left. It's like a, a, a man saying, like, you know, you haven't loved me for years. And so I'm like, I'm here. Like, I'm getting ready to leave. But I have been loving you all these years. You've been a jerk. Right? And waking up to that. Or they say in 33, we're, we're so wasted away in our sins, nothing good could happen now. God's like, are you? No, the whole point of me letting you waste away in your sins to be so depressed and feel so lost and so unloved is so you finally come to the end of yourself. You're like, do you think I take any pleasure in anybody's death? Of course not. I'm, I'm contriving every possible way to get your attention, to invite you to turn around at any moment, no matter how far it's gone. He's like, he's like and he says over and over, why will you die, Israel? It's like the kind of person who won't eat and is just starving to death. It's just like, nobody can help me. Nobody cares about me. Nobody wants me to be better. And they're just like, just eat a sandwich. I will make you a sandwich. They're like, well, I mean, you know, if somebody really wanted to help me, they'd do something for me. And over and over and over, God is again and again in so many different ways saying, don't you see what it's like to be me? And if you saw for a moment what it was like to be him, then you would see what it's like to be you. That's the terrifying part. Because if I see through Ezekiel 16 what it's like to be Israel's God, and maybe Ezekiel does say, and it does say that that was a special time in history that Israel had reached a special level of corruption. But what's true in Ezekiel 16 about the adultery of the Jewish nation at that time is partially true of me. It's a, it's a difference of intensity, not a difference of kind. I'm a bad wife. And he's been nothing but a good husband. It's my selfishness and my focus on how I feel. And why don't you reveal yourself more? Why don't you show these things? And why don't you— And I've never yet once done all the things he just straightforwardly told me to do, that I know to do. Because he doesn't empathize with me enough. And he's like, you know what? Why don't you take five minutes and really reckon with what it's like to be me, loving you? It's five minutes. And it might change your world forever. Now, I'm going to go quickly through the next 16 points, okay? <laughs> Even though we may live among a stubborn people, like at any time, every, all human beings live among other human beings. But numerous times in the book of Ezekiel, God says, but you're going to stand on your own before me, right? The most famous passage is chapter 18, but this is also true in chapter 33, right? He comes back and he says, each person is going to be judged individually, Right? And it's important to recognize that, right? He says this, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share in the guilt of the father, nor the father share in the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. But if a wicked person, man, turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, then he will surely live, and he will not die. Right? And the opposite is true as well. Now, could you skip through the rest of those passages up there if you can? Now, here's the point that God makes over and over again. You have to choose. Listen, I understand philosophically speaking that there are a number of mysteries in Christian faith. How is Jesus entirely God and entirely man? How is God one in essence and three in persons? 
how, like, I get it. One of them is divine providence and human responsibility. How is it that God says, I will give you a new heart, and the entire rest of the book is pleading with you to choose him? How does that go together? And the answer is, I don't entirely know. And the Bible doesn't entirely say. What it says is this, is that God is active in us being saved. He's working. His Spirit is present right now to lead you to either to Him or to lead you further in Him. Right now. And whatever power is needed, whatever revelation is needed, whatever work in you is needed, is that if you open yourself to Him, He is at your elbow in a moment seeking to help lead you forward. There's always divine grace, help, generosity, present, and God is powerfully doing these things, even to the point where it seems like He's saying He's doing it all, like raising dry bones to life. And at the same time, though, the entire book is about human responsibility. Do you see that? The entire book. The entire book is saying, look, you have to turn. You have to choose. You have to decide. Right? Think of it this way. Oops, sorry. Went too far. Right? Like, in Christian circles, especially evangelically, Bible-believing, fundamentalist, whatever, like, it's a broad swath. It's a big tent. Right? What we normally say is repent and believe right? Repent and believe. Why do we say that? Why do we say that religious language? And the answer is because we're quoting Jesus the Christ. That's why we say that language, right? In the very beginning of Mark, he goes, he says, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? Repent and believe. Now, those—the problem is, is that we don't know what words mean anymore, right? Abomination, right? Uh, okay. Repent is essentially a morally grounded recognition of the real cost and meaning of what you've done, right? It's recognition. It's just saying that happened. Like, when, when you apologize to somebody, what makes it a good or a bad apology, right? It is not whether or not you utter the words, I'm sorry, because you could say, I'm sorry that you feel this way, or I'm sorry that you reacted this way, or I'm sorry that you're so shallow, or I'm—right? You don't say those words, but you know what I'm saying. The words, I'm sorry, are not material. What matters is whether or not you recognize and give recognition that you did something wrong. You say, I did X, and X is moral value. Do you understand? And that's fundamental. And if you don't do that, you did not apologize. You didn't reckon with the thing. You didn't recognize it. You didn't say, this happened. And the other person's forgiveness of you can only be abstract if you don't reckon with it. There can't be real, full, mutual acceptance because trust is not rebuilt. You can't trust somebody who can't morally reckon with themselves. Do you understand? It's one of the reasons why the loss of faith in the L-O-R-D leads to idolatry, which leads to injustice, which leads to violence. It must. We must move to abomination when we don't move towards the Lord and know Him, because it must be that way. The less we morally reckon with ourselves, the more untrustworthy we are. And what is the basis of the capacity to love? Trust. You have to be able to trust the other person. And that's why one of the most fundamental realities in Christian faith is forgiveness. But why God must demand from you and I repentance or recognition. You must reckon, right? And you have to consent. That's what faith essentially is. Because faith is this thing that you must do in the Bible, but is absolutely not considered a work in the Bible. Now, that's kind of weird, right? You're like, wait, I have to do it, but it's not a work. Correct. 
right? Think about it this way, right? The wages of sin is death, right? So think about wages. You work for wages. You, you're owed something. So a work is something that when you do it, you're owed something, right? Are you owed something if you consent to being saved or rescued? No, it's not a work. You didn't, it's not like you put in three hours and you should get 1595 or whatever. Like, to consent to receive from God to be saved is not a work. It's, but faith is— it's work, and it's not a work. Do you understand? It's a sweaty business. It's difficult to morally reckon with things. It's a lot. People, people want to believe that if, if faith is the, from the grace of God, and God saves us by grace, then it shouldn't be hard. No, it's hard. Faith is really hard. Faith, real faith, is the hardest thing you could ever do in your life. Ever. And it's not a work. You understand? Because the grace of God is helping you, you're driving his bulldozer, okay? Your work is multiplied 10,000 times by the grace of God, right? But also, it's not a work. It's a consent. Do you see how the two things God demands are literally the two things that are absolutely necessary for a relationship of love? Do you understand that? One, there has to be trust. And if trust has been broken through sin, then trust can only be restored through recognition. Apology, repentance, forgiveness. We offer the repentance. He offers the forgiveness. And he offers it. We have to offer it in a morally serious way. We have to actually recognize what we did. And he offers our forgiveness in a morally serious way by the death of the Son of God himself. And yet, trust can be restored, and therefore a relationship can be restored, and therefore glory can be given. Right? And two, consent. You don't have to be a Christian to realize that that's one of the necessary parts of a loving relationship between somebody who is not abominated, bestial. If we were beasts, God would not need our consent to love us, right? I never asked my dog Luna if she consented to me loving her. In fact, she gets loved by my kids all the time against her consent. She's just like, oh, I'm so hot. Oh, let me go. And my kids are like, no, we love you. And it's like, what? Well, you're a dog, you know? So what you're here for, you're livestock, okay? You're here to make my kids happy and relieve their stress. That's the only reason you exist. You know what I mean? I don't say that to my daughter, though. You know what I mean? She's a person. And to some extent, our love for each other has to be rooted in consent. She has to love me, and I have to love her. Right? All right, I keep moving. The third thing I think you, you have to see in the book of Ezekiel, because it's not highlighted— as explicitly in other places of the Bible. It's there, but it's not talked about as explicitly, is that the miracle of redemption must be established in the grounding grief of moral memory. One of the, one of the things that your average psychologist of self-help and self-esteem and that nobody should ever feel shame would be very upset about, about this book is in a number of places, God says, listen, when you are redeemed, when I do all this for you, you're going to remember everything you ever did. You're going to learn what it was like to be me because you're going to know the Lord. You're going to know who I really am. That's going to force you to reckon with who you've been. And it's going to wound you in a way you can't possibly imagine. And the result is going to be the most beautiful thing. It's going to humble you in a way that you'll be able to receive pleasure from me forever. And it will stabilize you as a spiritual and moral creature so that you can be mine forever. Right? Because here's the thing. What's going to keep you from going back? If we're so delusional— Like, see, a lot of, a lot of Bible-believing Christians, they read the passages about the power of God, and they go, well, when Jesus saves me, I'll just never go back. Right? Jesus is a good shepherd. He'll just keep me. Okay, okay, okay. 
But how? Yes, he's going to keep you. That's what shepherds do. But shepherds do something to get the sheep to go where they're supposed to go. They don't just like, like, you've never seen a shepherd who just has a pointy hat and a wizard wand. He's just like, psst, psst, make, right? Like he's got a crook and he's like doing shepherdy stuff to get them to go where they're supposed to go. Do you understand? Like Jesus is a shepherd. He's not a wizard. Do you understand? Like we tend to think in overly magical terms about how spiritually we develop. We're human, spiritual, embodied creatures, and we are shaped by God. And how does he keep us? He keeps us by both filling our hearts with the beauty of the acceptance of redemption and simultaneously forcing us to reckon eternally with the humiliation of our wickedness. So that it's—we don't forget it, right? And so simultaneously, we're not lost in shame— but we're grounded morally, right? Remember the first, um, the first Narnia book, right? Edmund is called Edmund the King. He's the just, but he was the betrayer, right? And then why, right? Because the person who has come full circle morally will be the most just, right? The person who betrayed saw the fruit of their betrayal, died the death of the betrayal, see, actually can see what was done on their behalf that they can be redeemed, to be redeemed, and to understand justice, that person will be the just, right? And so what happens in the end is that God gives a new heart. He raises the dry bones from the dead. He says, I'll give you back a new land. You'll be mine. I will be your God. All these blessed things he says. And when that day comes, you will remember and be forever humiliated such that you will never even open your mouth. Why does he do that? And the answer is because we are meant to be shaped permanently in a divinely empowered, image-bearing humanity that can enjoy the glory of God forever. And that only happens when we really know the L-O-R-D, Lord. When we know Yahweh as he is and ourselves as we are, when our relationship can be reestablished through recognition and consent, repentance and belief, so that a loving relationship can be redeemed and reformed, so that we can be forever shaped as those who can be fitted to taste of the magnificent glory of God forever, that he will have redeemed us entirely for heaven, for our true end and our real good. Now you might say, Nick, that doesn't feel positive enough. It still feels kind of gloomy. Ezekiel's kind of gloomy. Ezekiel is kind of gloomy, y'all. Okay? But there's this really neat illustration that God gives at the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel. And I think it's one that if you're a believer that you should receive because in the book of Ezekiel, if you're really a believer, then partly you're identifying with Ezekiel. Right? In chapter 2, God writes on both sides of the scroll. That's not normal, by the way. You normally only write on one side of a scroll, but he writes on both sides of the scroll. Apparently that's kind of emphatic, you know? And it says that what's on there is a message of woe, lament, and something else that's bad. It's a synonym of the other two. It's like really bad stuff. It's just all—everything's negative. It's all bad all the time on both sides, right? And he's like, read it! And so Ezekiel's like reading this scroll, and it's like, it's just, I'm, you're gonna die. I'm gonna kill you. Everything's terrible. You're awful, adulterous. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of bad stuff, right? And then, and then God says, okay, son of man, eat it. Right? Now that's weird, 
okay? But, the, but like we've just, we've just had an image in chapter one of the wheels within the wheels with a million eyes, with fire and four-headed beasts. God's a little weird, okay? Like we're, we've already established this, okay? And so now the weird, strange, magnificent God goes, eat the scroll that's full of anger and woe and lament and destruction. And it says that he eats it, and he said it was sweeter than honey in his mouth. Okay, you, you see what that's a metaphor of? Right, like, to redeem us, God puts before us things that are very difficult. Okay, to see them, to hear them, and to reckon with them is really painful, and it's hurtful, and we feel ashamed and, and attacked and angry about it, and we don't want to just submit to this God, and it's just, right, and it's difficult. But if you do the impossible, if you, if you accept, you have to eat a scroll, <laughs> right? What you find is, is that when it comes into you, it's the sweetest thing you've ever taken in. It's sweeter than honey. It's more beautiful than diamonds. It is glorious. It is full of the magnificence of God. It is healing to our abomination. It brings us back with a new heart, with God's Spirit working in us, back towards the one who has always loved us and loves well, and is who has not just liberated us from slavery, forgiven us from sins. His goal is not just to make us good religious people. His, God is, his, his purpose is to eternally give us glory. Right? And listen, friends, Jesus is that scroll. I mean, not literally, but literally. Okay? Is he the only reference to that scroll? Probably not. Is he literally the fulfillment of God's redemption to the nations as that scroll? Yes. Jesus is difficult. You read the Bible, you're like, Jesus is so nice. Jesus is not so nice. Jesus is tough. He's direct. He's straightforward. He tells people to repent and believe. He tells people that they're wrong. He points to corruption. He does, like, even his nice stories have kind of a bite to them. He calls a woman, he compares a woman metaphorically to a dog because that's what she is in the metaphor. I mean, she's, he's straightforward. And you're like, Jesus is kind of difficult, but people loved him because he had a way of making the scroll of woe more biteable because he was, he was God in the flesh right in front of him. And he carried with him both, right? The woe and the promise of healing, beauty, and new life. He was himself the Ezekiel declarer of the woe because of sin, and also the coming of the new kingdom of the power of God in life and redemption and healing in one thing, which is exactly what Ezekiel is. God promising the two together as our full redemption in Jesus is that full redemption. Your task today is not to believe Ezekiel 36. It's to believe in Jesus the Christ through recognition and consent. Lord, I could have said a lot less, and I could have said a lot more. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd use that which I have said and done to bless your people, to help us to see you better. To help us to cherish these pages of the Bible in a way we wouldn't have without this series and year together. I pray that um, this message, the message of Ezekiel, would ring in us, and that we'd be able to teach others out of it, and that it would be a great help 3,500 3, years later. 3,000 years later.
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.